This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for April 30th, 2018. Iran is a complex and dynamic country in the middle of a complex and tense region. So the Iranian nuclear deal takes a lot of understanding and it's important to understand it. Fortunately, on this podcast, we have an expert in U.S.-Iranian relations who was actually born in Iran. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Online now, I have Trita Parsi. He is the founder and president of the National Iranian American Council. He's also the author of several books on foreign policy, including his latest one published last year, Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Um, Trita Parsi, you were born in Iran, as I understand it. What's your view of the government currently in place in Tehran? I think the Iranian government uh, is one that is far less than what the Iranian people deserve. Um, The Iranian people at the end of the day have been struggling for democracy in Iran for a very, very long time. They had their constitutional revolution in 1906. Iran actually was uh, at least an embryonic democracy in the early 1950s. You had a parliament that Uh, elected a prime minister. The parliament was elected directly by the people. But unfortunately, in 1953, the United States and Britain uh, uh, conducted uh, uh, a coup Mm -hmm. against the democratically elected prime minister Mossadegh and reinstated the Shah, who then became much, much more oppressive than he had been before. So it's been an ongoing struggle. And right now, I think the Iranian government, because of its repression, because of uh, its corruption, as well as its uh, uh, economic mismanagement, uh, is one reason as to why Iran is not as wealthy, as prosperous as it could be and should be. Okay, just to give people maybe a positive history, after World War II and the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, Iran had a government that, as you say, had some of the trappings of democracy. I don't really think it would be what would be considered a democracy now. In the 1950s, the US and Britain in particular sponsored what was essentially a coup which brought a king called the Shah to power. Uh, he was certainly a brutal and repressive dictator. And he lasted until I think about 1979, when there was the Islamic revolution. This was with the Ayatollah Khomeini. And very shortly after that, there was the crisis of American hostages being held in Iran, which was at the time of the, the changeover of uh, president from Jimmy Carter to Ronald Reagan, that was seen to have influenced that presidency. Relations between Iran and the US have basically never recovered from that hostage crisis. Isn't that true? It has not, but it's not the only reason why the relationship has been bad. Uh, the hostage crisis, of course, is a very, very big um, point 
on the American side in which anger justifiably has been there. On the Iranian side, the United States ended up supporting Saddam Hussein extensively, including um, providing him with aid for him to be able to use chemical weapons against Iranian civilians. The CIA papers about that came out uh, in 2013 that revealed... Mm. This was when Saddam Hussein was was a friend, uh, so to speak, of the United States. Uh, In the 1980s, he launched a war against Iran to try and capture some territory. The war ultimately failed, but it was devastating for Iran. It was a devastating war, roughly one million million casualties, and uh, the Iranians have not really fully recuperated uh, from that traumatic experience. And then throughout, there's been a 40-year policy by the United States to contain and isolate Iran. Uh, the Iranians, of course, themselves have been using uh, uh, violent groups, terrorist organizations, at least prior to 2001, uh, extensively in their struggle. So there's enough sins on both sides and there's enough suffering on both sides to be able to write plenty of books. But I only wanted to mention that to make sure that the viewers and uh, um, uh, the listeners understand that this is a complex relationship in which there wasn't one error that led to this. There was a whole series of errors and mistakes and measures, um, confrontational measures that had gotten us to this point. However, there was a very promising prospect and process in favor of being able to overcome some of these uh, uh, tensions and resolve some of the problems between the United States and Iran that mm-hmm. uh, started with the Obama administration's negotiations on the nuclear issue. Uh, and uh, if that had been um, further built upon, there are reasons to believe that this relationship would never probably have become positive or an alliance, but it would have been able to get out of the current state of hostility that um, once again is now characterizing it. Yeah, one thing that I'm curious, you said there at the beginning that the government of of Iran is not what the Iranian people deserve. Is it possible that you're self-peddling on that there? I mean, most people who know anything about the, the regime in Tehran would see that as a fascist religious dictatorship. They're responsible for gross violations of human rights, including murder, torture, suppression of dissent by all other means, and the silencing of opposition voices within Iran and going to great lengths to prevent any news from outside the country uh, being heard in Iran. This is not the run-of-the-mill bad government. This is really an especially evil regime, isn't it? I would say that this is a government that has been extremely repressive, but I think, um, and, and the Iranian people deserve something much better, but it does have things inside of it that has caused people to overwhelmingly, at least up until this point, try to change the regime from within through peaceful means. Mm -hmm. Because part of the problem of the way that you characterize it is that oftentimes people characterize it that way, and then they want to jump off and say, as a result, the West needs to intervene militarily. Because how can I I didn't do that. I I certainly know. I'm not accusing you of that. I'm just saying that that is oftentimes um, what follows such a description. Whereas in reality, this is a much more complex regime, one in which you also have elements inside of it that are pushing in the opposite direction. And the people, precisely because they made a big mistake in 1979, they were all focused on getting rid of the Shah because the Shah was also a very brutal dictatorship. Mm-hmm. And they paid far less attention to, okay, what would follow? And what would follow turned out to be in many ways worse 
than what existed in 1970s with the Shah. Can I, can I just ask to clarify your own position? As I understand it, you left, uh, or your family, and you were a young child at the time, left around the time of the Islamic Revolution. Did they leave because that the revolution made it unsafe for them? My uh, father was uh, a university professor that was uh, quite critical of the Shah, and that landed him in jail twice during the time of the Shah. And right before the revolution, when no one really knew what was going to happen, um, it was a very, very unstable situation. Uh, he took the opportunity to continue his research. He was a university professor that had been offered uh, a, a guest research position at the university in Sweden. So mm -hmm. he took the opportunity to take me and my family there. Once we got there, just within a couple of months, uh, the revolution essentially uh, became a reality. And then after that, the war started uh, with Saddam Hussein invading Iran. So we ended up staying in Sweden. I grew up in Sweden. And I have a European citizenship. You make the point, and I think it's a very important point, that if one has a simplistic view of the regime uh, saying that they're just evil, it's very easy then to make the leap to just say they're evil, therefore let's start bombing. But even if you can agree that that leap is uh, an unsophisticated way of thinking, it is really an evil regime, isn't it? It is an evil regime, mindful of what it does, but you're only focusing on one side. There is mm -hmm. also people inside Iran who think that the best way to get rid of this regime is to actually reform it from inside through the pressure that is taking place. So, for instance... If you're calling this regime evil, let's say that that is the standard we're going to use. What would you call the regime in Saudi Arabia? Oh, well, that's a little bit of whataboutery. No, it's not about. I'm, I'm just trying to say what the scale is. Because what happens in Iran is that you have opportunities for people to be able to move things uh, in a direction peacefully. And the reason why they want that is not because they think the regime is not evil. It's because they don't want to go through what they went through in 1979, mm -hmm. in which they're focusing only on how bad the government is and not focusing on what should follow afterwards. And when you have these kind of uh, fast changes, that's when you oftentimes end up in a worse situation than you were in before. Mm -hmm. Or what happened in Egypt in 2011, in which there were protests, clearly quite popular. And again, they had the same slogans as the Iranians did in 1979. The Mubarak must go, the Shah must go. And then what mm -hmm. would follow? was less thought of. Uh, and as a result, they ended up, uh, at least temporarily, or some would still argue, in a worse situation. So the overwhelming uh, belief inside the country, at least up until this point, has been that, look, this needs to change peacefully from the inside without any interference from the outside. They don't trust that the West has positive intentions towards Iran, even though the, they may dislike the regime equally and for their own reasons. And as a result, that has been the majority view, obviously not a hundred percent view, but the majority view of the people on the inside, because they have how, experienced how do you know? what happens. So, say what? How do you know? Uh, because that's the path that they have chosen. Um, you see that, for instance, in the participation in the elections. Do they go to these elections because they love the regime? No, but because it offers them a non-violent way of influencing the direction of the country. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, mm -hmm. but it's better because it is less risky of going and saying, we want foreign intervention uh, and we want support from the outside or we want a revolution uh, because that's how change is going to happen. If you take a look at the protest 
that happened. For instance, you just say, how do we know? Well, I would like to know how you know that it would be the opposite. Oh, I'm not suggesting, take, I'm just trying to yeah. establish it. If you take a look at what happened in the protests that occurred in uh, December of last year and then went into January as well, it was quite fascinating to see uh, how widespread it was because it spread to roughly 100 cities. Uh, but it was on its scale still much, much smaller than the protest in 2009. Mm -hmm. In 2009, you had 3 million people going out in the streets saying, where is my vote? They had voted in the elections mm -hmm. and they were convinced, and I believe that they're right, that there had been massive fraud in the elections and that Ahmadinejad had not won. 3 million people go out on the streets. In the protest that happened in 2017, you had a fraction of that on the streets. Uh, people were very frustrated, again, I think legitimately, about the economic woes and the mismanagement and the corruption and the repression. Uh, but, but their calls were more towards regime change revolution, and they did not get the same buy-in from the broader uh, population, not because the broader population doesn't want to see a different regime. They do, but they're not agreeing with the idea that it should come through a revolution because they live through that once and they see how disruptive that is and how often it actually leads to a worse situation. I wonder what proportion of them did actually live through it. I think it was quite young people were involved. But nevertheless, just to focus for a minute on US-Iranian relations, in when you left, I think in about uh, 1979, 1978-79, uh, you left – at that time, apartheid was in force in South Africa with no prospect of changing. The conflict in Northern Ireland between nationalists and unionists loyal to the UK government was in full swing. The Berlin Wall was separating two sides in the Cold War. All of those conflicts have moved on. The conflict between the US and Iran has not. Why do you think it's frozen like that? Because you have elements on both sides in Washington, in Tehran, and as well as elements uh, in the region, particularly in Israel and Saudi Arabia, who don't want to see the relationship between the United States and Iran move in a positive direction. I write about this extensively in the book, mm -hmm. uh, in which it really became clear. That, that actually was my question, or it was a question I wanted to ask. It's clear to me that there is some political currency to just bash Iran in Washington. There's, there's uh, an advantage to being the person who is most against Iran. Does that exist in Tehran as well? It certainly exists in Tehran as well. Uh, and again, throughout most of the 40-year history, either you had a scenario in which the hardliners on both sides were strong enough to control the policies of both capitals, or you had a scenario in which there were people in Washington who wanted to reach out, but you didn't have anyone in Tehran that was strong enough to be able to push it in that direction, or vice versa. And the only time we've actually seen that on both sides of the fence, both in Tehran and in Washington, you had an administration that was willing to pay the political price of breaking the deadlock was during the last couple of years of Barack Obama and the first couple of years of the Rouhani administration. So, so you're saying that there was an essentially a lucky time then when you had people on both sides in ascendancy who were willing to reach out. Was that anything to do with the conflict with ISIS in Iraq and Syria? No, it actually preceded that. ISIS took Mosul in 2014. Uh, the negotiations, the secret negotiations between the US and Iran started in 
Oman in July 2012. It didn't lead to anywhere until March 2013. And then you had uh, Rouhani get elected in uh, May 2000, uh, May or June 2013. And you had the interim deal, which was a very important deal because that's when the both sides show the political will of actually saying yes at the same time, struck in November 2013. And ISIS really didn't emerge or at least didn't become that force that could take over Mosul until, uh, if I'm not mistaken, May 2014, was well, sometimes in 2014. Yeah, now, just for the listeners, Mosul is the city in northern Iraq that became a very strong, a large stronghold of ISIS at a time when ISIS was controlling large swathes of eastern Syria and northern Iraq. And um, the emergence of ISIS certainly added a new dimension in which the Iranians and the Americans actually saw that, at least on that issue, they had common interest. Um, but uh, it wasn't the reason as to why the two sides had started negotiating, nor was it the reason why they ultimately managed to strike a deal. Of course, the Israeli lobby and support for Israel is enormously strong in the United States. The threatening noises that come towards Israel from Iran are absolutely disproportionate to any relationship that Israel could ever have with Iran. Israel doesn't have any border either with Iran or with any country that has a border with Iran. Um, there was a very small Jewish population in Iran, but I think they have mostly left. There may be a small population left. There's no real economic rivalry between them. But the level of vindictive propaganda coming from within Iran, including coming from the regime itself, is just incredible. Aren't Israelis reasonable to fear that they've just got a crackpot regime here uh, that threatens their existence? I'm really glad you asked that question because my first book, if I could plug it uh, Please briefly, do, yeah. Treacherous Alliance, The Secret Dealings of Israel, Iran and the United States, deals extensively with this issue. Actually, my PhD dissertation was on Israeli-Iranian relations. I spent a lot of time in Israel and in Iran interviewing senior officials about their dealings with each other, which most of it is actually behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. uh, the picture is far more complex than what you are painting right now. Um, you had the Israelis and the Iranians actually having a very close relationship during the time of the Shah. And it was driven uh, primarily from the Israeli side. They were more eager for that relationship than the Shah was. But it was based on a common threat perception that both Iran and Israel shared common threats. And those common threats were the emergence of um, the penetration of the Soviet Union in the Middle East. The Iranians in particular were very worried about that. Mm -hmm. And um, strong Arab nationalist states. That Just were to put a pause on that there, because I want to explain for people, Trita, in Iran, you speak a language that's sometimes called Persian, sometimes called Farsi. It's written with the same letters as Arabic is written. They borrow the alphabet from Arabic, but it's not Arabic and it's not related to Arabic. Ethnically, Iranian people are overwhelmingly not Arabic. They're a diff entirely different ethnic group. And there is a history of some tension between Arabs and Persians or Iranians, whatever you want to call them. Arabs are the majority population in countries like Jordan, Syria, Iraq and Egypt, which seem to threaten Israel. So there seems to have been a the enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of situation there. Is that correct? 
Yes, uh, parts of it. If I could um, clarify a few points. Yes, Please, so the, yes. the Iranians are actually a very multi-ethnic uh, society, many, many different ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. But as you mentioned, overwhelmingly, I mean, the Arab population in Iran is uh, probably less than one or two percent. The Sunni population is, is a little bit larger, but that's because Baluchis are, tend to be Sunni, Kurds tend to be Sunni. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Iran is one of the only countries in the early onslaught of Islam that became Islamized, meaning that they became Muslims, but they did not become Arabs, Mm -hmm. meaning that they retained their ethnic, linguistic, and cultural connection with um, Iran as it existed before the Arab invasion. Whereas Egypt, for instance, an even older civilization in Iran uh, became Arab in the sense that they're considering themselves... They were conquered culturally. They were conquered culturally, religiously, linguistically. Iran was not. It resisted very strongly. And uh, there has been extensive tensions between uh, many Arab states in Iran over time, uh, particularly between Saudi Arabia and Iran, of course. And the Shah was very suspicious of the Saudis, particularly Arab nationalists, particularly Nasser's Egypt, and then later on, uh, Saddam Hussein's Iraq. And the Israelis, of course, because of their occupation of uh, Palestinian territory and, you know, the many wars they had with the Arabs clearly saw the Arabs as their primary threat. So during the 1950s, 60s and 70s, this brought the Iranians and the Israelis closer together. They collaborated extensively on security and intelligence. But the Shah still kept the Israelis at arm's length officially because he did not want to have a a de facto recognition of Israel. He still maintained the position that he will only recognize Israel once the Israeli-Palestinian issue has been resolved. And part of the reason why he did that is because he felt that if he actually embraced Israel openly, some of the Arab energy that was targeting Israel would be shifted towards Iran, and he wanted Mm -hmm. to avoid that scenario. Now, a perception exists that all of this changed in 1979 because Iran had an Islamic revolution, a, an ideologically zealous uh, regime took over that had a very, very venomous rhetoric against Israel. And that's where the root of all of this is. Well, reality is that for an entire decade in the 1980s, the Iranians and the Israelis actually continue to deal with each other behind the scenes. That was behind the scenes. And in public, there is a very public and very aggressive stoking of what can only be described as anti-Semitic and and very uh, virulent anti-Israeli propaganda. But you cannot, you cannot, particularly in the Middle East, you cannot just analyze foreign relations by looking what's happening on the no, surface. No, of course not. But, but you acknowledge that that was there. You, you just repeated what I said. I said that on the um, behind the scenes, they continued to have a relationship. But on the surface, the Iranians were using a very venomous rhetoric against Israel. Yes. Now, why did the Israelis agree to this? Well, the Israelis agreed to this because they felt that the geopolitical situation actually had not changed. They still needed Iran as a balancer against Iraq, particularly after Saddam Hussein invaded Iran. It was critical for the Israelis that Iran did not lose that war. Because if Saddam Hussein had gotten a hold of Iran's oil uh, fields in the southern part of Iran, Saddam Hussein would have become the most powerful man in the Middle East and would be able to pose a far greater threat to the Israelis. Mm -hmm. So the Israelis continued against American wishes to support the Iranians, they were actually the only country outside of North Vietnam that provided the Iranians with uh, spare parts for the Iranian 
uh, for the American weapons the Iranians still had in their reservoir mm-hmm. uh, in violation of an American arms embargo that uh, President Carter had put in place. And as you probably remember, in 1986, you had the Iran-Contra scandal in which it turned out that the Israelis had initiated a secret channel between the Iranians and the Americans in which they wanted to help the Iranians get very sophisticated weaponry from the United States not only to be able to make sure that they didn't lose the war against Saddam Hussein, but because the Israelis wanted to bring this regime, which was actually even more radical and zealous and um, um, uh, ideological than it was later, on better terms with the United States, because that served Israeli geopolitical interests. Trita, can I give you an alternative reading of that, that both the US and Israel didn't want either side to win. And as long as the war was going on, and that war went on, I think, for eight years, as long as that war was going on, then both sides were losing. That's an excellent point. And that's a shift later on that happens in Israel, in which the Israelis uh, essentially wanted to keep both sides preoccupied, because at the end and of the day... it didn't hurt arms sales either. It didn't hurt arms sales, but that's not how it got initiated. No, no, What it was true. initiated was because the Israelis actually wanted to bring the U.S. back on better terms with Iran because they were afraid that once Khomeini died, Iran would go towards Soviet Union and that would be a geopolitical disaster for the Israelis. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had a very bizarre situation in the 1980s in which it was the Israelis that lobbied for Iran in Washington at the time, telling Washington to talk to Iran to sell arms to Iran, and perhaps most importantly, mindful of what you just mentioned earlier on, not to pay attention to Iranian rhetoric, because what was happening on the rhetorical level and what was happening at the policy level was quite different. All of this changes, not with the emergence of the Islamic Republic and their very venomous rhetoric against Israel in the 1980s, but in the early 1990s, when the geopolitical situation once again changes. What happens in the early 1990s is that you have the collapse of the Soviet Union, and you had the defeat of Saddam Hussein when the United States and the UN coalition decided to take out uh, or or to push out Saddam from uh, its occupation of Kuwait. Suddenly, the two key factors that had pushed Iran and Israel closer together in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even in the 1980s, despite the regime, despite its rhetoric, despite its ideology, those two factors more or less evaporated. There was no longer a Soviet Union, and Iraq was defeated, which meant that there was no longer any military, convention, any Arab conventional army that really could pose a threat to Israel. The threat Israel faced was now non-conventional, uh, uh, the threat of terrorism, uh, rather than, than, than uh, an actual, you know, 25 divisions uh, of uh, Iraqi soldiers running over Jordan and positioning themselves on Israel's eastern border, which was a nightmare scenario that the Israelis were dealing with. Trita, I have to hurry things along a little bit, and it's very interesting oh, to, 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 that's okay. It's very interesting to speak to you. But if I were to summarize it like this, you can maybe comment on whether this is correct or not, that the winner of the war between the US coalition and Iraq, the winner of that war was Iran, because essentially a Shiite government, people who have the same religion, although they're Arabs, they have the, share the same religion with Iran. Shiites are a large majority in Iraq, even though Saddam Hussein was a Sunni and, and kept them down. The Shiites then formed the government and Iran has become much stronger. So this uh, strategy of 
keeping Iran and Iraq at war with each other suddenly got way off balance and Iran has become much stronger than either the US or Israel would like them to be. Certainly, as a result of the invasion of Iraq and the fact that the U.S. Um, really botched up that war, the Iranians have, in an unintended way, of course, ended up becoming the winners of that. That was quite clear already by 2006. Um, I, I think clearly this was not the intent of the U.S. This was not supposed to be a favor. But if they had a better analysis of the region, they would have been able to understand that this is actually going to be the most likely scenario because of all of the different opposition groups that existed against Saddam Hussein, most of them were funded by Iran. Most of them were actually stationed in Iran. The U.S. essentially had one guy, an Ahmad Chalabi, and Ahmad Chalabi had no following inside of Iraq. Mm -hmm. So the Iranians very cleverly maneuvered early on, and they made sure that the political landscape would be one that would be much more favorable to them. Uh, and this was critical for them, by the way. This is not a minor issue for them. This was their top national security concern to make sure that Iraq would never again fall into the hands of a strong ruler that would be allied with the West and would become uh, a launching pad for a war against Iran. Because the Iranian view, correct or incorrect, is that Saddam Hussein either attacked Iran on behalf of the U.S. or at least with some degree of American encouragement. Moving forward, do you think that there's a conflict coming between Iran and Saudi Arabia? Yes, right now, the Saudis, going actually back to what you said, the Saudis were warning the US, don't invade Iraq, you're going to end up giving Iraq to Iran on a silver platter. Mm -hmm. And they're absolutely livid about it still. They believe they lived up to their end of the bargain with the US, which was that they kept low, low oil prices, they didn't uh, mess things up too much with Israel. Uh, and in return, the U.S. would be protecting not only Saudi Arabia, but other Arab allies. Not only did the U.S. go in and destroy Iraq, hand it over to Iran, then when 2011 happened and you had the uprising against Mubarak, they believed the U.S. abandoned Mubarak, a strong American ally, and that the U.S. essentially had become completely unreliable. What they want is for the U.S. to push the balance of power back to the way it was prior to 2003. That, which would, be means say, that, you, that would be to say in favor of Sunnis, the rival group to the Shiites who control Iran. Exactly. So they wanted to have a balance that existed when Iran was completely isolated and contained uh, and which the Saudis had maximum maneuverability in the region. Okay. And that Saudi means, Arabia and is... Just, just make ahead. that one. And that means, in the words of former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates, which he said, uh, which was revealed through WikiLeaks at a meeting with the French, he said the Saudis want to fight the Iranians to the last American. And what the Saudis are doing right now is they're trying to convince the United States to re-emerge in the region militarily, take on the Iranians, because that is what's going to be favorable to the Saudis. Whether it's favorable to the United States or not, perhaps we can talk about that at the next uh, opportunity we get to discuss these matters. Sure, sure. At the moment, there are talks of an alliance between Saudi Arabia and Israel and the United States. Um, I know it's not your area of, speci of speciality, but do you really think that the average Arab person would tolerate Saudi Arabia even under the table, complicitly being allied to Israel? Well, the alliance you're talking about is already there, and it's actually f quite open. It already existed in 2006 when the Saudis were on the Israeli side when uh, Israel and Lebanon or Hezbollah had their war. But then it was secret. Now it's very, very open. 
Um, and in Saudi Arabia, at least, it doesn't appear as it become much of an issue because the Saudis have been uh, beefing up their uh, Iran propaganda to the extent that the Saudi population seems to be much more concerned about Iran than, than Israel. Outside of Saudi Arabia, outside of some of the GCC states, you can clearly see that there is already a, there already was uh, not necessarily a very positive view of the Saudis, but it's definitely become worse. And particularly when you have a situation in Gaza starting to bubble up again as it is right now, Mm -hmm. I think that's going to create some problems for the Saudis in the Arab world, but probably not so much inside of Saudi Arabia itself. Trita Parsi, the founder and president of the National Iranian American Council, also the author of many books, including Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me. Have you read a blog post or an opinion piece that you think is really right or really wrong? Tell us why. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com and let's discuss it on the next show. That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast published on April 30th, 2018. I've got a link to Trita's website and books and other information in the show notes on the website. And if you know someone else who I should interview, or if you've got a suggestion of a topic that I should cover, please get in touch. And you can like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at Challenging O, and you can follow Trita Parsi at T Parsi. And most importantly, you can subscribe to the show. It's free. You can use Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any other podcast app or software. There's links and an RSS feed for all of that on the website. And if you don't use any of those apps or software, you can subscribe by email. Just put your email into the website. And each time a new show goes online, you'll get a simple email with a link to listen on the website. And zero spam, I promise. You can find all of that or get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's May 7th, I'll be talking to the historian and podcaster Royfield Brown. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.